0: After Cindy Vanderheiden went missing on November 14th, 1998, her family searched tirelessly for her, carrying on up to and after Sherman Tyne and Herzog's subsequent arrests in March 1999 and way past the end of the trials. The searches were extensive and hundreds of people helped with them. We spoke to Tracy Myers, one of Cindy's childhood friends about her memories of this time. You may remember Tracy from Episode 1. She has been invaluable in helping us on this case.
1: I was pregnant with TJ, and my husband and I both worked at Ron Gross Racing over on Kettleman Lane. And Ron Gross, really good friends with John as well. And he had this black and white checkerboard floor, like a our race car flag, like when you win the checkered flag. And I was standing in the middle of that checkered flag. I turned around and he had a flyer. And I go, what are you doing? And he said, Cindy went missing. I said, Cindy who? He said, John daughter." I, I said, Cindy Vanderheiden? And he said, yeah. I was like, oh my God, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. I couldn't believe it. When they started asking for people to search, I don't even know how much longer it was, like, That day, that night, next day, we all met up out there at John's house and everybody split up and started looking because you saw how close to John's house the cemetery was. Can you imagine the agony of John? I was this close, right? I really thought we were gonna find her. Because knowing how we all are when we were partying and stuff like that, I don't think, and I don't think I really, I don't know. I thought maybe she got in the car with somebody else and they took off on a run. You know what I mean? And, like, when you hung out with guys like that, like, they didn't bring you back when you said bring me back. You know what I mean? So I thought maybe she got in a car with somebody that was partying and they took off and you got home when they brought you home. So I just really wasn't
0: sure. So you thought she was going to walk in the door sometimes?
1: I did. Like everybody else said, they found her keys and her purse and everything in her car, which made it a little bit more suspicious. You know what I'm saying? But again, I just don't think... I wrapped my head around that there was, I don't know. That had never happened before. I was trying to think about missing persons cases and I need to look it up because I believe there was a girl that went missing from Toke High and she was like 17. That's the only other one that I had known about. I was gonna look that up because I thought I wondered now if that's a Time victim, but I don't know. I just thought we'd find her. I really did. I thought that they were all partying somewhere and either they stayed up all night for a couple nights or they crashed out for a couple of days. Or even that maybe, maybe somebody took, I didn't think she was dead. I never got that feeling that she was dead. And everybody else, I thought John find her. Anybody could find her, John could. And it just didn't happen. And then it's like what John says to you. Know, time goes by. The Cindy Search Center went up, which was up, was the shop that John and I, we took you there. They met that, that, the Cindy Search Center, and searched for a really long time. And then eventually, everybody's got to go back to their lives. And I, we took you there. They met that, that, the Cindy Search Center, and searched for a really long time. And then eventually, everybody's got to go back to their lives.
0: In June of 2000, John Vanderhyden, Cindy's father, received a call from a local man called Ed claiming to know what happened to Cindy. This is Rob Dick, one of the bounty hunters helping on the case. This is his account of what happened. So June of
2: 2000, Ed calls John, and he says, Hey, I need to meet with you tomorrow. They're in custody now. I can give you some information that may lead you to your daughter. May. May. I talked to Kim Call, talked to John. The plan was that I was going to go in the restaurant, sit like behind John. Because at this point, I mean, you got to understand, through all this, because this is June of 2000, we just started hearing all the trial stuff. We know about the tapes where Lauren talked about all the people. There's the part where Sherry, who is Wes's ex-wife, said that one night, Wes said that there was this group of seven people. It was a pact between them. And that if anybody talks, the others would kill the entire family of that person. And that's why nobody's ever come forward. No one's ever going to talk about this. So the plan was that we're going to set up in this place, and I always carry a gun. And we, all this stuff, we've always had guns. and It's just been one of those things. Because when we were searching, when we were around his property up in those hills, I mean, we came into weed grows, occult stuff, pissed off property owners, and it was always the disclaimer of, look, we don't give a shit what you're doing. We're just looking for some victims. That's all it is. So we had this plan that we're gonna go there. I was just gonna make sure nothing happened to John. John was gonna talk, and there was gonna be a discussion of whatever he had to say. Been missing person ever since that phone call. He never made that meeting. Which, going back to me being very factual, the only thing i know for a fact is that something happened to ed and lauren and west were in custody <laughs> which now okay so there's obviously somebody else out because something happened poor sure he's dead his nephew said that he would never leave the two most important things in his life one is el camino Two is his daughter so we know that they're both in custody and something happened to ed the nephew said he wouldn't just walk away from his life because Leonard thought that for a while that he just got scared and took off but he's never come back he's dead he's dead we just haven't found him yet and that was june of 2000 and both of these guys were in custody so if you go in linden linden inn where the bar where cindy was missing was here and then ed's house is here and so supposedly the night that cindy went missing lauren's harley wouldn't start so west and lauren pushed it over to ed's house and then he jumped in Wes's car and then they met Cindy at the cemetery. And so the next morning, obviously, they would have to go back to Ed's house to get Lauren's bike. And that's when '98 I could see Wes all day long and be like, look to their buddy. See what happened? Don't say nothing. New on double. I don't know. But something probably transpired, which was probably what he wanted to tell us. So there is that connection, but we don't know what happened to him. The only thing anybody knows is that supposedly a guy matching his description banged on some lady's door middle of the night saying that these guys are trying to kill me, I need to get out of here, I need a ride, blah, blah, blah. Nobody knows. Him and his wife Sham were fighting that night and her version is he just stormed off and never came back.
3: On the 22nd of November, 2000, Shermantine's trial started in Santa Clara County. Both Shermantine and Herzog's trials were moved to Santa Clara County due to the extensive publicity surrounding them. Shermantine was charged with four murders Howard King, Paul Kavanagh, Chevy Wheeler, and Cindy Vanderheiden. Shermantine's jury consisted of five men and seven women. Shermantine's lawyers, Doug Jacobson and Deborah Fielkowski, had asked for there to be more than one trial. They argued that the cases involving male victims should be tried separately to those cases involving female victims. They stated that the charges against their client in respect of the murder of Howard King and Paul Kavanagh came about largely due to the statements of Herzog, rather than from evidence obtained, and therefore these should be treated separately. Their wishes were dismissed, and Time was being charged with all four cases in the same trial. Deputy District Attorney Thomas Tester was the prosecutor for the state. He was assisted by San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office Detective Deborah Sheffel and District Attorney Office Investigator Steve Kneef. They fed Tester reports and hand-carried notes from victims' families throughout the three-month trial. Sheffel and Keneef have worked tirelessly on this case, clocking up thousands of hours looking for evidence that would tell them who killed Paul Kavanagh Howard King, Chevy Wheeler and Cindy van der knew of the Shermantine name as it had a certain notoriety in eastern San Joaquin County for decades. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, Shermantine's uncles, Harry, Henry and Robert Shermantine, would set fires, rob liquor stores and wreak havocs throughout Linden Antaker, and Stockton. However, Kneef had not heard of Wesley Shermantine Jr. until the 27th of November, 1984, when he was working in homicide for the Stockton Police Department. It was during this night that he dragged himself out of bed to investigate the murders of two men, Paul Kavanagh, aged 31, and Howard King, aged 35, whose bodies had been found off Highway 4 on Daggett Road. Kneef described how at the scene he found King's white Pontiac, with the bodies of King and Kavanagh, stretched out either side of the car. He said that King's face had been blown away, and that Kavanagh's body was riddled with bullets. He also noticed that the pockets had been cut out of their pants. Knief said that once the forensic scientists and pathologists picked glass out of King's face and reconstructed the manner of death, he could almost envisage the scene preceding the murders. Could King have heard a tap on the window, turned his head to see who was there, to so be met with the barrel of a shotgun? It looked very likely that they were both killed from the driver's side first, then subsequently shot some more, Keneath said. Kavanaugh was shot four to six times in total, which Kneef called overkill. He, meaning King, was clearly looking at the closed window when he was shot, said Sheffel, who would, 15 years later, become the lead detective on the Cindy van der Heiden case. It was during this time that she became intimately familiar with the Daggett Road murders. Police theorised that on the night of the murders, King, who lived in Lathrop and worked in the Bay Area, went looking for company in Stockton. He found Kavanagh, a drifter who was living out of his Volkswagen bus, and headed towards Daggett Road, which was a popular place for homosexual men due to its remote location. As you heard in episode one, Letitia Larkin climbed into her car at 11pm and started her commute home from work, ending up being followed by a small red pickup truck with a shiny grill. This provided the first real break in this case, and Kenneith followed up with Letitia, ensuring tire tracks from her drive were taken and compared to those at the scene in Daggett Road.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery holding up? Mine's been draining lately. Consumed by the darkness of true crime tales. But amidst the shadows, it's crucial to remember to prioritize our mental well being. Just like unraveling a twisted plot, therapy helps me untangle the knots in my mind. It's about gaining clarity, finding strength, and reclaiming control over your life. Considering therapy, BetterHelp offers a lifeline in the darkness. It's completely online giving you the freedom to seek help in your own terms. And with a simple questionnaire, you can be matched with a licensed therapist who understands your unique struggles. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Fowl today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Fowl, F-O-U-L. In his opening statement, Deputy District Attorney Thomas Testa said, quote, There are no fingerprints, no eyewitnesses, no smoking gun. It's all in the details. You've got to put all the details together. End quote. Testa also said, West told several individuals that he had hunted the ultimate kill humans. It's the way you would treat animals, the overkill suggests human prey. During the trial, Testa told the jury that it was believed that Shermantine may have killed as many as 20 others, though it's now believed that number is much higher, some even quoting triple figures. It is likely we will never know the full extent of the speed-free killer's rampage of horror. Testa painstakingly provided details of each disappearance and repeatedly said over the years. Shermantine had relatives and friends he had made people disappear in mine shafts, under trailers, in remote hillsides outside Stockton. When Chevy Willer went missing on October 7th, 1985, Shermantine was the main suspect. She had told friends she was meeting him, but nobody actually saw her get into his red pickup outside the school gates. Some of the Stockton Police Department labeled Chevy as another teen runaway, but Knieff was less certain and told the wheelers this. I had the same concerns that they did, that things were not well with Chevy, Knieff said. Knieff focused his attention on a very uncooperative Shermantine, who, three weeks after Chevy went missing, traded in his Corinthian red pickup for a blue sedan. Kanif said that the red pickup reported by Larkin in the Daggett Road case briefly crossed his mind, but he dismissed it. As part of the investigation into her disappearance, Shermantine's family cabin in San Andreas was checked. Here the police found some hair and blood on a bed, a wall and a bag of cement, which they collected to be tested. Unfortunately... Back in 1985, DNA testing was in its infancy. So it was many years before they were able to send the sample off for this type of analysis. Early in 1998, an undersheriff for Calaveras County called Keneef to report that Shermantine had been arrested and charged with the rape of a Valley Springs woman. This woman was Lisa Pisano, who we spoke about in episode 3. Keneef said, he called me and said, Hey, your buddy's, at it again. your buddy's at it again. It was time to reopen the Chevy Wheeler case. There were some new homicide detectives in the Stockton Police Department, including Rick Rousdale and Pete Peterson, and they were keen to try and solve the case. Peterson contacted Tynes' estranged wife, Sherry, to ask her if she knew anything about Chevy Wheeler. She had lived with him for more than 10 years, after all. Unfortunately, she didn't know anything about Chevy, but she did say Shermontine had told her about a couple of guys on Highway 4. Knieff said, Holy cow, the red pickup truck, when he found out. Shermontine was acquitted of the rape of Lisa Pisano, despite compelling testimony from herself and a number of other victims who came forward. The same month, Peterson submitted for DNA testing a pair of Chevy Wheeler shorts and the blood found in the Shermantine family cabin, which had since been demolished. The first results were inconclusive, so Testa ordered more. On November 7, 1998, the second batch of results came back, confirming a link between the Shermantine cabin and Chevy Wheeler. In a cruel twist of fate, just a week later, Cindy Van der went missing.
3: Tester said that he can still remember Stockton Police Department homicide detective Rick Ragsdale storming into his office, throwing Cindy's file on the desk and demanding snow. How many more girls will have to
0: die before Shermantine is arrested?
3: Cindy Van der disappearance was Sheffield's first solo case. She found out about Shermantine's connection to the case just a day after Cindy went missing. She repeatedly asked Shermantine to come in for an interview, but was unsuccessful. New evidence came to light in January 1999. Sheffer was contacted by a lady who looked after Schermantyne's parents' house. She said that she had seen Shermantine Jr. there, frantically cleaning his ice-blue Nissan the day after Cindy went missing. Sheffer was desperate to search this car, but there was not enough evidence for her to obtain a search warrant at that time. By a stroke of luck, Shermantine had missed some payments on the vehicle, and on the 20th of January 1999, the car was repossessed. This company then handed the vehicle over to the authorities. When Sheffield found out what had happened, she said, "'It was incredible. "'When they called and told me that there was human blood in the trunk, "'it was like, my God, there it is.'" Although Cindy van der Heyden's body was never found... Tester took the jury through the details of how authorities believe she was kidnapped and killed during a crank fueled meeting with Shermantine and Herzog. Cindy's family attended court every day through both Shermantine and Herzog's trials. Her father, John van der Heiden, told us about his memories of attending court and the impact the trials had on the family.
4: I was there every day. Every day they were in court, I was in court. When the court sees, I was there. My wife didn't go as much because she came back to work. She couldn't take it. But I was there every day and every court date. And to listen to some of their lies and everything, that was the hardest part. And going and testifying was pretty hard to walk by them. And I had two sheriffs, one on each side of me, trade me in and trade me out as And uh, the deal is that i I i felt that they shouldn't be protecting him but at the time they weren't proven guilty except that they were guilty in my mind to the beginning but they stole human rights and that the officers were just doing their job and i'd have to keep telling myself that when i was in the court i couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom until the sheriff get up and make sure that i was what i was doing I answered all the questions they had and what I thought about them. And they didn't like what I thought about them, but I said it anyway.
0: And you had to say that twice, one for each trial, right? Yes, I did.
1: This is like another assault on the family, as far as I'm concerned, because my understanding that the sheriff's office paid for Schermanty and Herzog's families to all stay up there in Santa Clara in a hotel and... All that, but the families had used their own money to stay.
3: Cindy's sister Kim also told us her experience of the trials, the threats the family received, and the impact on her family life with her and her children.
5: So, when the trial started, of course, it was a high profile case, so we had to go to another county, which was almost two hours away. Therefore, my mom couldn't work. My dad couldn't work. I couldn't hold down a job. We were in court Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to whenever it was done. We lived in a hotel. It was heart-wrenching. It was craziness. You have to relive it every day you're in that courtroom.
3: And how long did the trials go on for?
5: I want to say that a good year for each of them i'm not totally sure on the time frame because as you can only imagine when you are away from your family away from your home the time frame just you don't know one day to the next it's just a big blur so are you going home managing to go home at weekends and see family or yes i had i had a young child I was able to go home and see my children. I was with my mom and dad, but at the same sense, I still wanted to be able to see my kids and to do any searching that I could do without neglecting them. We got so many tips that we would go down mine shafts. We would go to backwoods. I think I took a three-wheeler once and went all over Sherman Times adjoining property. My girlfriend and I actually went and got my truck stuck in a river or a stream and had to get pulled out. We weren't supposed to be there. We we went everywhere. And then I got threats as well as tips. We would get threats like people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, remember to watch your back. We're following you. We know every move you're making. Just stupid, crazy threats that I'm assuming and pretty positive came from not only their families, but maybe their close friends that were involved that didn't want to get caught. I would say they were probably targeted at more my myself and my father because we were the ones out doing most of the work. It was at that time that I made an executive and the hardest decision of my life was to have my kids move back to Wyoming with their grandparents and their father because the threats were so bad
3: so did all the time you had to spend at the trials affect your relationship with the children has there been, a long, has there been any long term effects of that Or
5: in the very beginning there was a few long term some short term effects but right now all of my children live here in Wyoming and we are closer than we have ever been We do a lot of things together. We FaceTime, we video chat. I have seven grandkids. We are a very close-knit family now. Ever since we got out of the California drama and moved to Wyoming, we have really become a tight-knit family.
3: Herzog eventually told authorities that Shermantine had raped and sodomized Cindy before slitting her throat and urging her to let death come naturally. Cindy's parents found out what had happened to their daughter on a visit to the district attorney's office. John van der Heijden, Cindy's father, tells us about that day.
4: We were at the district attorney's office up there. They had called us in and to tell us what they had found out, that Cindy had been beaten, sodomized, and made a thorough concept with them, and then fell down and cut her throat and let her uh, die on strangulation of our own, on her own blood.
0: After you learn all of this information, what happens next? Were they trying to look for where she was at that
4: point? We kept trying to find out where she was. They wouldn't tell us where she was or anything because of the fact that there were other bodies around that they didn't want to know about. But anyway, Lauren said the Sherman time was the one who cut herself. And so one of the trial dates up and one of the court's Sherman Time wanted the reward money from me. We had a, uh, oh, yeah. a large reward money up for the recovery of Cindy. You know of Cindy's whereabouts, and I wouldn't do it. And I told him I wouldn't pay blood money for somebody killing my daughter. And that's when Padilla got into it and said that he would give the money to Sherman Time if he would tell us where the body was. And he wouldn't do it because he wanted the Bandar Heights money.
0: During the trial, there were around 120 witnesses called, including five women who testified that Shermantine had violently raped or sodomized them. These included a babysitter, who said she had been attacked when she stopped by to collect money owed to her. One woman said he rear-ended her car, then kidnapped her at knife point, when she pulled off the road to exchange insurance information. She ended up jumping from his moving car and managed to get away. During the trial, Testa also quoted Lisa Pisano. The lady whose charges against Shermantine had been dropped. She had testified in her trial that Shermantine held her head to the ground and said, Listen to the heartbeats of families I've buried here. We described the ordeals of these women in detail in episode 3. If you go back and listen, please be careful. Their statements are very graphic and will not be suitable to all listeners. Shermantine's estranged wife Sherry also gave evidence that he had brutally beaten her for years, even hitting her when she was pregnant or holding her children in her lap. Shermantine appeared pudgy and balding. Throughout the trial he sat quietly and looked straight ahead, occasionally whispering to his attorneys, during closing statements, Sherman Tynes' attorneys had little to say about his redeeming qualities, except that he was a good worker, and he was sometimes a good father. Instead, his attorney focused on discrediting the witnesses who testified he had raped or kidnapped them. She said they were unreliable. One was a prostitute, several drank heavily, and some used drugs. Rob Dick, the bounty hunter we spoke to in episode 5, attended the trials too. Here are some of his memories of them. He also talks about Leonard Padilla, the second bounty hunter from episode 5.
2: Back then, John put up the $20,000 reward for Cindy. And Wes heard about it. Now they're in custody now, because this is 2001. You know, they're going to the trials. They separated the trials. And... West came out to the media and said that give me the 20,000 for my two sons and because I'm going to go away for a while and they need some money and I'll tell John where his daughter is. Of course, John was pissed and everything was bad. Leonard saw the opportunity, so he went public and I'll give you the 20 grand. You tell me where the bodies are. He went public, put it in the news that hey, I'll tell you, tell me where the bodies are. I'll give you the 20 grand and that'll be it. So, John hated Leonard at that point. Uh, it was such a bad fight. And I'm talking to Kim, and I'm telling John that Leonard's crazy. You just let him do whatever he's going to do. He's never going to pay him anyway. But it was just, it was all kinds of bad between Leonard and John at that moment. And then Wes's attorney shut it all down because basically, look, you're in trial for these murders. You can't be giving up bodies right now. So it was just cut off. So the trial, it was a change of venue to Santa Clara. All the families were out there. It was Chevy's family, Kim and John and Terry. And sometimes they had to work, but they were there most of the time. Kim was off, so she was out there. I was out there. And we were just listening to the trial every day. And that's how I met Joan, was because she was there for Joanne, daughter, that wasn't a part of the trial. But again, that was something that really made me think and I don't know why nobody else thought about it back then, but she knew they had something to do with it because Joanne was friends with Chevy, they lived close to each other, and now they both were missing at the same time. But because Joanne had run away before, when the officers responded, they would only take a runaway report because she'd run away before, and they said, ah,
0: she'll be back. February 14th, 2001. After a lengthy three-month trial and hearing the testimony of around 120 witnesses, Sherman Time was found guilty and convicted of four counts of murder by a Santa Clara County jury after four days of deliberations. He had been offered a deal that the death penalty would be dropped if he would tell the location of the two bodies. However, as Sherman Time was led away from the Santa Clara County courtroom, he ignored the only lifeline he may have left. He stated that he would give up the location of Chevy Wheeler and Cindy Vanderhyden for $20,000. The money would go to his sons to help with their education. Thomas Testa, San Joaquin Deputy District Attorney, said he would have nothing to do with the money demand, but had no power to stop someone else from giving Shermantine money. The families were horrified by this offer and refused to even consider giving him any money calling in extortion, and saying that they wanted no part of it. However, Leonard Padilla, a Sacramento bounty hunter, offered to pay. At this stage, no deal was done.
3: After many hours of deliberations, on the 9th of March 2001, the jury recommended a death sentence for Sherman. Tyne. We have transcripts that explain the process the jury used to reach their verdict. Here are some of their notes. They began their deliberations with the 1984 Daggett Road murders of Paul Kavanaugh and Howard King. They used a mathematical equation and statistical analysis to estimate the likelihood of another red truck like the one Shermantine owned in 1984, leaving matching tyre tracks at the scene of the crime. The possibility topped one in 400,000. Then they discussed Cindy van der Heiden's murder, saying, This was the easiest of them all. We went through all the evidence and then voted 12-0. to zero. Next, they discussed Chevy Wheeler, but whilst they never doubted Chevy and Shermantine were together the day that she died, they were split on whether or not there was enough evidence to warrant a conviction of first-degree murder. Juror number 10 said, We were able to early on establish she went with Wes. She was in the cabin, and then she died. But then it could have been an accident. Then one evening, after a long day of deliberations, juror number two, who had been one of the holdouts up until this point, was stood in his laundry room. He realised that this room was about the same size as Sherman Time's cabin, and that in order for there to have been blood on that many surfaces, the bed, the wall a door, there must have been a struggle. And therefore, he decided that the 16-year-old girl's death had to be first-degree murder. Juror number two said, it wasn't an immediate death. If it had been, there would have been blood all over. The second blow elevated it to first degree. His arguments helped to sway the final holdouts amongst the jury members who clearly respected each other. Juror number 10 was quoted as saying, I do feel that everybody who was on the jury was supposed to be on this jury. You couldn't put together a better team in a corporation. The jury never questioned the DNA evidence and the humanity of those who came forward to tell their stories. They praised the Shermantine's family housekeeper, Sissy Heyman, who testified to seeing Shermantine frantically scouring his car just days after Cindy disappeared. They felt that Lisa Passano was one of the more credible victims. Schermantyne had previously been acquitted of the rape of Lisa in 1998. The jurors said that they were disgusted when Shermantine asked for $20,000 reward in exchange for revealing the location of the victims' bodies, although they would have been willing to forego the death penalty if he had voluntarily revealed his information. The jurors were unanimous about one final thing, a quote from Jura 11 says, It was a difficult decision. I'm sure that it's going to reach deeply into each one of us for the rest of our lives. On the 16th of May 2001, Schermantine was sentenced to death. He still denied killing anyone, blaming Herzog. Joanne Hobson's mother, Miss Shelley, attended the sentencing with Schermantine. She told us why. The day that Time was sentenced, now, like I
6: said, Joanne had a date, but we never mentioned it. The only person I mentioned it to was Thomas Testa, the district attorney. And I told him that Detective Little had told us not to mention anything about the date, just to keep it to ourselves. So anyway, I went to Wesley Time's sentencing, and I sat directly behind him. When they brought him in, he was shackled by his legs and they shackled him to the desk that he was sitting at. And I was sitting directly behind him before anybody, even as soon as the court was in session, I stood up and asked the judge, I think his name was Garrison or something like that, if I could say some words to Wesley Shermantine. And he told me, I'm sorry, Miss Shelley, but I can't let you do that because he wasn't charged with the missing of Joanne. So I said, OK. So anyway, you know, the victim's family spoke into the microphone and everything. And then they gave the microphone to Wesley Time The very first thing out of his mouth, he was trying to turn around to see me. And the first thing in his mouth was, Miss Shelley, I don't know who you are, but I knew your daughter Joanne. And she had a date that night with Lauren Horzog and he killed her. And see, i that was the last thing we ever expected to hear in the courtroom. So I just went all to pieces. Wesley said what he had to say to the other people, like the Vanderhines and the Wheelers and stuff like that. And then the bailiff come up to me and he says, Miss Shelley, I have a note for you. And so anyway, he gave me the note. And I read it and it was it said that Wesley wanted to see if I would come, sign a visitor's information thing, and come to see him. He wanted me to come to see him. So I sent back a note saying yes, and I gave him my address and everything, and he sent me a visiting form for for me to come up to see him in San Quentin.
3: We asked Cindy's father, John van what he felt when the verdict came in on both trials.
4: That was a that was a relief, but it wasn't much of a closure at all because we still hadn't found her body or anything. So we really didn't know. That's for a proven fact other than that the court proved it. So it was, like I say, it was a relief for something in that we knew that they weren't going to be out killing anybody else.
3: John also tells us about the victim impact statement he gave to Wesley Shermantine. It was specifically in relation to him hearing that Shermantine had said, let it come naturally after slitting Cindy's throat.
4: I remember that when you go to jail, I just hope when those big guys hold you, then so they can whisper in the ear, just let it come natural. That's what he was supposed to have said to Cindy while he held her down, and she was gasping for air and choking on her own blood.
3: Finally, Rob Dick tells us about John's victim impact statement what happened when Wesley Sherman Shermantine Jr. made his statement after he was handed his death sentence and his subsequent conversation with Thomas Tester about Joanne Hobson.
2: This is the day of victim impact statements for his sentence to death. So this is Tom Tester, the DA. This is Chevy's dad. This is Cindy's dad, John, here. Can so they get to make their victim impact statements at the sentencing. Joan was there to make a victim impact statement, too, and they wouldn't let her because obviously she's not part of the case. His attorney's objected and can't say anything. So everybody knew about that because it was in the courtroom. That's how Wes knew about it. He's sitting there when you know she's talking, she wants to say it, and the attorney objects, and you got to sit down, you can't talk. It's only these two. And they actually get into it. In fact, actually, when John did it, I get it, it's motion and everything. But like the story is that Lauren told about Cindy when, he, when she died. Wes held her down and she was bleeding out, and he said, let it come naturally. So then John repeated that at the sentencing. You know, when you're in prison, and they're getting you, just let it come naturally. And then he went into, and you've got two kids out here, and if something happens to them, it's going to come naturally. I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> I can't say that, because if something happens, then they're going to lose you. But anyway, so a lot of emotion, everybody's talking, Then he gets on the stand, he's crying, and he's just hiding kill anybody i was just guilty of being a good friend you're sending the wrong person to death you're giving the wrong person the death sentence and he looks at her and he says miss hobson i don't know you but you know your daughter's dead lauren killed her she's in the boneyard and so it just erupts like this guy tried to jump the rail to get to him Bayless tackled him but he said something about he was going to take where his daughter's spot is to his grave that he was going to never tell him that he was going to take it to his so grave. Horror. Yeah, that he would take it. Not that he did it, but where Lauren buried him, I'm going to take it to my grave. So that was the you to torture you. So they're convicted May 17, 2001. And this is where I really got just thoroughly into this, because by this time, we'd heard about the confession tapes. We'd seen the confession tapes, had all the documents, and it was just over with. And I went to Testa, and I'm like... Now what? And he's like, now what? What? We're done. And I'm like, what do you mean we're done? We haven't found Cindy. We haven't found Chevy. What about Joanne? We got a murder case now, right? And he's no, we're just we're done. And I'm like, I don't get it. And Tess Tessa's is a great guy, and I think he was a really smart guy, but he was just like, you know what? Here's the way the system works, and it's unfortunate, but we got two bad guys, we got two violent crimes, plus of course the guys, but more Cindy and Chevy. And we've put them away now. And it's, but that can't be it, because these people are just like in so much torture by not knowing the end and where's the closure for them. like, I know it sucks, but we're not going to do anything. There's nothing to be done. And I'm like, what about the spontaneous statement in open court about that murder? And he's like, it's not enough. It's not enough. So it just drove me crazy, because as I started looking at these cases, I realized that Here's the, I think to me, the driving force is that the way today is let's say you have an adult family member, daughter, let's say, that you have a relationship, like you talk all the time, daily on the phone, whatever. She doesn't live with you. She lives in her own place and she goes to school, she works, she calls you on the phone. And there's this routine that goes. And then, You don't get that phone call and you're like that's weird and next day still no phone call and you're like oh that's really weird it's never been that way so you go over there and there's no real signs of a struggle there's no real signs of anything but it's odd her purse her phone keys everything's there doors unlocked and that's it and you call law enforcement law enforcement is only going to take a missing persons report after a period of time But that's as far as it's going. Even though you and your heart know that something happened, it's not this person. Something is bad. We gotta figure this out. But the way we are here, it's not against the law to walk away from your life. So if I was that girl, I could just one day go, nah, I don't wanna talk to you anymore, and I'm gone. And just walk away from the house, live homeless, do whatever, Because that has happened sometimes with people that have mental problems or whatever. Where I guess my driving force was that these cases, that's not what happened. But there's no one doing anything. So it just totally consumed me.